If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Whether it's a sun and sea resort, a far-flung adventure, or just the simple pleasures of camping, nothing beats a good holiday. And we aren't the first to think so. In her book, Tourists, How the British Went Abroad to Find Themselves, Lucy Lethbridge looks at the emergence of mass British tourism in the 19th and 20th centuries. She told me more about early package holidays led by the fatherly Thomas Cook, vomit-inducing long-distance stagecoach journeys and the hedonistic pleasures of continental health spas. Thank you so much for joining me, Lucy. Your book is called Tourists. And tourism has for a long time been seen as something quite different and distinct from the age-old practice of travel. So when did this idea of tourism um, emerge in Britain and what set it apart from the travelling that had gone before? I mean, oddly enough, I think it is actually has a longer lineage than that because it is, in fact, the idea of the tour, the tourism, the tourism part of the tour, um, is really in direct descent from the medieval pilgrimage when uh, people went in groups, small groups, um, to Constantinople or to Rome to see the relics of St. James in Santiago, for example, and then they would come back with uh, a cockle shell or certainly having built up some credit in heaven. Um, And it was a a lifetime's holiday, we would now call it, uh, but with a very strong purpose. So I think in a sense that that tourism actually does have that deep uh, kind of collective memory of a purposeful tour. And of course, that was followed by the idea of the grand tour, which was made by young aristocrats who went to the great sites of classical Europe to burnish their classical education. Um, and which was the necessary, all the necessary accomplishments and knowledge that went with being a gentleman of leisure um, and an aristocrat. So when did these forms of tourism expand and become accessible to more people? Well, I've started my book in 1815, which is the year of the Battle of Waterloo, which ended the uh, decades of the Napoleonic Wars. And um, which which had closed off the continent to the British for nearly 20 years. Um, there'd been a brief respite in 1802 with the Peace of Amiens, but that hadn't been very successful and the shutters were closed. And in 1815, the British hadn't seen France unless they were fighting there for two decades. So over they pour. And of course, Um, there'd been enormous changes in that early part of the 19th century. So the sort of person who suddenly wanted to see the continent was very different from that grand tour aristocrat that I mentioned before. Um, There's an expanding middle class, there's new steam packet travel. In a very short time, there will be railways. The first railway is 1831. So we're really getting into the industrial age when travel is going to be made much easier and much more democratic and really purchasable for anyone with 
enough money to take a train and take a steam packet and stay in a cheap hotel. Mm. And that really, I think, is the beginning of what we now think of as the kind of mass tourism, which, uh, which we have today. And something I was really fascinated to learn in your book was that Brits abroad haven't always had the best reputation. And actually, that is quite a long-standing thing. Can you tell us about some of the caricatures um, or stereotypes about British tourists that you uncovered in the historical record? Uh, Well, I think, to be fair, I don't know that the Brits abroad have a worse reputation than anyone else abroad. I mean, I think that, that, you know, marauding groups of foreigners change local areas irrevocably. As long as they come in numbers, they are always viewed as bringing change, bringing, you know, difficulty, bringing roughness, bringing alcohol, all all these things. I don't think the British are alone in that. But I think the British have a very distinct way of of satirising ourselves. So the British love nothing more than to transport their own class calibrations, their own sense of identity as uh, as being closely allied to class. And they take it abroad with them. And of course, when you're abroad, you see your own countrymen in a very particular way, in a sort of goldfish bowl, and you encounter people from home who you would never encounter in the normal course of events. I mean, that's the same today. You know, to to go on a long train journey, you may sit next to someone of a type you'll never, ever meet in your working life or your social life. Um, And that's part of the great charm of travel. It's part of the great mind expansion. Um, But the Brits enjoy this particularly because it plays to our own delight in satirising our own class types. And in the 19th century, there grows up a whole sort of school of of hilarious caricatures of tourist types, you know, the fusspot invalid, the ridiculous gullible girl who um, is excited by everything foreign and all in a flutter, Um, the terribly frightened lady who thinks that foreigners are all out to steal her purse. Then there's the kind of huge red-faced John Bull who refuses to eat foreign food and these are all in a way highlighted by the tourist experience when British types themselves are thrown into uh, proximity with other types. I mean, the, the accounts of going on a steam packet across the channel, for example, when everyone was incredibly sick. And so you might have booked yourself a first class cabin, but in the end, absolutely everyone on a bad crossing went up onto the deck. So you were throwing up with all types. <laughs> and I think that, that it's that sort of slightly democratising experience that makes um, our accounts of our own tourist adventures very particularly piquant, because it's really about our own particularly observable uh, delight in class difference. Mm. So in these early days of tourism in the 19th century, what were some of the most desirable destinations? Well, my book concentrates on Europe. Um, In fact, over the 19th century, people travelled all over the world. The novelist Trollope went round the world about twice. Um, I mean, he was, you know, he was not alone. People were incredibly adventurous, much more than we might imagine now. I mean, they went on, they went in for long haul travel. um, And when it really was long haul, when it took you, you know, days, weeks, months to get anywhere. Um, But the popular... Uh, tourist destinations, sort of group tourist destinations, the crowded uh, places were 
similarly the places that they are now. Um, but they were essentially laid out by the grand tourists. So they were Rome, um, Constantinople, uh, Paris, of course, Venice, uh, you know, the places of Italy, Naples, Vesuvius, uh, Sicily. Um, and then sometimes the Low Countries were also very popular. Uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Brussels, Ghent, Bruges, um, and of course, Germany, which remained one of the number one uh, destinations for English tourists right up to the Second World War. And I wonder if we could talk now about logistics. What were some of the practical challenges of going abroad in, in the 19th or perhaps the early 20th century? Things that we might not even think twice about today. Before the trains, you would have had to, once you got off your steam packet or your channel, your channel crossing, probably feeling absolutely ghastly and having been sick the whole way. Once you stumbled onto the gangplank, there would have been a huge amount of queuing and bureaucracy and customs. Um, there was a lot of stamping of passports, a lot of checking of luggage to make sure you weren't bringing in contraband. Um, and then um, you would have had to take a diligence from Calais, for example, to Paris. The diligence was a horse-drawn omnibus, a sort of stagecoach, but it was absolutely huge. It was the cheapest form of travel, so everyone was crammed in. And there were various classes. It was slightly cheaper to sit on top of the roof, but at the same time, it was vastly preferable to sitting inside because you were squashed in with other people um, and the terrible smells. And if you could think people are being sick on the diligence, having just been sick on the boat, there was no air. You couldn't see out of the window. Um, but chiefly, the problem was that the it went at about three miles per hour. And it changed horses every six or seven hours. So it took about three and a half days to go um, from Calais to Paris. And people talk of the misery of the diligence. And I must say, one can one can really feel how ghastly it was. I found a diary in the Bodleian that was written by a man on a, on a diligence. And his handwriting is all over the place because it was obviously jolting all the way. You can imagine wooden wheels. On a on a sort of cobbly, unmade road, and um, his handwriting is all over the place. And finally, he sort of signs off saying something cannot go on too miserable. <laughs> and <laughs> it was obviously simply the worst, the worst possible experience. Mm. Um, some people that sprung up to help out with issues like this were, of course, travel agents. So, when did travel agents emerge, and what kind of services did they offer in the early days? There were people called things like vetrianos that you could appoint in on the continent when you'd arrived, which would be paid guides. So um, you would uh, would find yourself a paid guide, and he would look after you for the whole journey. But in the um, with the age of trains, you get this um, the new idea, which is an all inclusive trip, which is the really which we've lived with ever since which is the model of the holiday by which everything is taken care of by an agent. Um, and of course, the most famous of those and among the first, not quite the first, but almost the first, was Thomas Cook. Um, and he saw that the new railways of the 1850s were going to transform the lives of working people. And he was a great temperance campaigner. And 
in order, uh, he thought, to stop working people from going to the pub on their holidays, he would introduce them to holidays that would expand their mind, distract, educate, um, and further the good of mankind altogether. And he saw that to do this, he had to help people by um, offering them an all-in deal. So he would uh, give you your train ticket, your accommodation, um, and uh, probably your food all in, as well as a guided tour. And this was completely revolutionary. No one had ever experienced this before. So when he first, well, he first uh, took his all-in tours in Britain. And then in the 1850s, he took a group to Paris. And when you say he took a group, he literally took the group himself, is that right? Yes, he took the group. He was a very sort of fatherly, I think rather stern figure, but utterly trustworthy and reliable. And so people who had never travelled before, particularly independent women, who he particularly also encouraged, they would give him their their money, give him their lives, um, and he would look after them. And this was a, a completely revolutionary new form of travel. And people were meeting other people for the first time through this form of travel as well. So you get this idea that the holiday is, is removing you from familiarity and putting you in a completely new place with completely new people. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So I think the tourist in the 1950s wouldn't see a great deal of difference uh, in their you know, their trip to the continental uh, beach holiday emporium in Sardinia than they would if they went to a similar one now. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It sounds terribly exciting. From all the diaries and the accounts that you found of people going on these expeditions, these holidays, um, was that the general sentiment? Were people just really excited to, to experience something different or did some people have concerns? Well, I think there was certainly a feeling among the upper classes that their territory was being invaded. And I think, you know, that it's a feeling that happens now, isn't it? We all know what it's like uh, when you hear from people that their favourite Greek island has been discovered, you know, after an article in the Sunday Times travel. <laughs> Everyone comes pouring in and the original people who thought they were, you know, the very first to find it um, are in retreat and have to go and find another island that's even more private. Um, I mean, this is the story in a way of tourism and very particularly, I think, of British tourism, which is... Um, it's a, a sort of parad- has a sort of paradoxical double edge. On the one hand, it's the search for privacy. I think it's it's a it's a national characteristic that we are always looking for somewhere uh, untrodden. We love the, the 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 idea that we're having a small adventure uh, somewhere where no one else has been. Um, and on the other hand, we also 
make wherever we go into this little Britain, you know, this sort of either a posh little Britain, there are many Greek islands, uh, where which is uh, which are posh little Britons, and then there are fish and chippy and, you know, sort of hermetically sealed sun and sea resorts. So you get this this um this twin sense um that uh the British are are moving in groups um and other British are running away from them at the same time. And there's a huge amount of snobbery about the the cooks groups that sprung up. They were considered very middle class. They were sort of commercial travellers. They only had two weeks holiday a year. And the people of leisure who didn't have to worry about any holidays at all because they didn't work looked down on them. And they were often characterized, you know, with tremendously snobbish um, terms like herds, flocks, swarms, um, you know, these rather sort of dehumanizing lumpen terms like animals. Well, I think that point you raised there of holiday leave is an important one, isn't it? Because when did most working people get enough time off? And when was there a conception that you would use this leisure time to to go on holiday? Well, traditionally, the working man, the really working man, the manual working man, um, his holidays were entirely at the whim of his employer. Um, And traditionally, they were holy days, holidays. They were feast days. So in holy feast days would be a a day off uh, when everyone would uh, get together and make merry and and not have to work. Um, and, but as the Industrial Revolution got going, those were whittled away because more and more working people went into factories. And factories, one, ran on much stricter lines. And, uh, you know, owners of factories were less inclined to give time off, uh, time that used to be, you know, part of the agricultural cycle. And so in the 1870s, they introduced the first Bank Holiday Act, which meant that there was statutory bank holidays. Um, but two weeks holiday a year, the statutory <laughs> paid holidays of any longer period didn't come in until 1938, so just before the Second World War. Um, and before then, you might have had two weeks off a year, but you had to pay for your own holiday because you you weren't going to be paid over that period. So quite transformative then for... Totally, um... totally. I mean, that's that's like nothing, uh, like nothing else. One of the slightly less glamorous forms of holiday that you do discuss in the book is the rise of camping. What can you tell us about that and when it became a thing? Well, camping is part of the late 19th century reaction to the Industrial Revolution. I mean, I come to the conclusion in the book, in fact, that um, the modern holiday, as we understand it, uh, dates back to the mid-19th century, and it is all a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. All modern holidays are searches for pastoral Arcadias. There is a sort of collective yearning for something that is non-urban, that is um, untouched by modern life. And of course, by going there, we destroy it. But the, um, the camping holiday, I think, is very particular um, to that experience. Um, at the, in the end of the 19th century, you get this, this interest in um, bicycling, in um, outdoors life, in things like hiking for men and women, in exercise, in things that would certainly not have been fashionable um, 50 years before. And 
there's this um, desire, I think, to return to the land. You know, the 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 early journals of the camping associations are always decorated with a pot over a fire, which is a very um, deep, I think, um, sort of Arcadian British yearning for a world that's lost. Uh, there's a great interest in travelling people, in Roman gypsies, for example. There was a whole new science grew up, or a, call, a sort of socio-science, uh, called gypsyology that became very popular in the 1880s, 1890s. People looking at the Roman gypsies, uh, listening to their songs, interested in their history, is interested in the travelling experience. Um, and that feeds from camping into caravanning, which I think is part of the same impulse, which is a very deep idea about the um, freedom of taking to the road. A moment when you are released from the petty tyranny of office life, of bureaucracy, of dreary timetabled nine to five work, and you are free. And did you uncover any holidays that to modern tourists would seem strange or unusual? I know that one thing you mentioned is tourism to the Third Reich. Yes, I don't think that would seem unusual to us because I think tourism, if anything, has been seeking, seeking out even darker things recently. Um, I think that, uh, as is the case with all merchandised experience, uh, you know, in the end, once the experience seems banal or familiar, you search out even more extreme forms. So I think that in the Third Reich, when uh, the um, Nazis in particular were very keen to promote Germany as a place of uh, new ideas and um, a kind of superior uh, social management. They particularly marketed visits to Dachau um, and they called it a labour camp for undesirables. And a lot of, uh, of British tourists uh, went on cycling tours or went on walking tours or, on, or just on group cooks tours to Germany and came back having visited Dachau, um, seen the inmates and thought that they were looking at a social experiment that they often uh, thought seemed to make absolute sense and be extremely wholesome. So it is interesting the way these things are presented to us um, and it's not always easy to see the rationale when you're there behind the presenting of that. Um, but one could say the same about visiting Auschwitz now. Auschwitz, as you probably know, is now a UNESCO heritage site, uh, but it's falling down. Should we rebuild it? These are, are very live issues about tourism. And, and I think that the seeking out of dark experience is a familiar theme throughout the 200 years until now. Another theme that you unpick in the book is a connection between tourism and health. What can you tell us about that? Well, a lot of travelling uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century was done um, for health. People seeking changes of weather or they were looking for water cures, going to spas, because of course uh, people didn't know the causes of these very prevalent uh, diseases like tuberculosis. It was very popular to go for long periods to spas, to hotels, 
that had hydros to take the waters. And all over the continent, there were these um, watering hole spots which had had mineral waters for many years that had been uh, thought to have had health-giving properties since Roman times. Um, and around them built this rather luxurious, often quite decadent uh, societies. People would live there for a long time, and they were often free of the gambling regulations that were in place in other parts, particularly of Germany. And so they were places where you could gamble. People thought they were dying often, uh, so that they, you know, it was it was a bit like living your last days. Uh, people would you know, they were famous for people having affairs, um, <laughs> and you know they were considered very curious sort of worlds within worlds. Um, and the cures were often terrifyingly extreme. You know, there were all sorts of theories about being wrapped in wet towels, uh, hot water, boiling water, dousing yourself in these absolutely horrible springs where everyone doused. At Weisbaden, there was, and it was Baden-Baden, there was a uh, a sort of scum on the water that obviously came from all the sweaty bodies that were bathing there. And um, it was called cream. And Baden, the authorities at Baden-Baden, rather than saying it was an absolutely disgusting health hazard in itself, um, marketed the cream as particularly health-giving, insisting that people drink it. Oh, oh dear. No, thank you. So, Lucy, if you could jump in a a time machine and partake in one of these journeys that you've documented in the book. Are there any that really stand out to you that would be really fascinating to go on? I'd like to have visited Mallorca, I think, just before uh, the real turning point in the early 30s, when it became a sort of sun and sea destination. I'd love to have gone there then to see the to see the interior of Mallorca before it was sold to huge mass touristic experience. Um, and I th- I've also have quite a yen to go on one of the gypsy caravan um, holidays that were very popular with the middle classes around the nineteen twenties. Um, and it was you know to, to have a to hire a horse drawn gypsy caravan for. Uh, two weeks, and set off down unpaved roads, getting your food from local farmers um, and, you know, having a pot over a fire. Yeah, I think that... I buy that romance. I like yeah. it. <laughs> um, what do you think these earliest generations of tourists would think about holidays today? Well, the modern sun holiday has been around since after the Second War, which after all is nearly 70 years now. Um so I think the tourist in the 1950s wouldn't see a great deal of difference uh, in their, you know, their trip to the continental uh, beach holiday emporium in Sardinia than they would if they went to a similar one now. I think that they would be astounded by the interest in food. I mean, one of the things I was quite surprised about when I started researching this book is how little uh, the Victorian uh, tourist um, or the Edwardian tourist or even right up until the 21st century was interested in food. But that, of course, is a very abiding thing now. I mean, people, you know, food has has made places a destination. 
Um, and so it's kept alive all sorts of interesting local food products that I think would have long gone. The Victorians never mentioned food other than to wonder where you can get a good cup of tea and to say that the food isn't um, up to scratch. I mean, <laughs> they very they very rarely will say, well, we, we, we want to go to this place in the Alps because they've heard that, that there is a particularly delicious cheese. Um, and so that is, that is a new modern um, uh, holiday invention, which I think is interesting. And will bring in its wake all sorts of, of, of local uh, preservation, which I think is good. That was Lucy Lethbridge. Her book, Tourists, How the British Went Abroad to Find Themselves, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 